Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be focused on lean mass and specifically muscle. Let's go. A very common scenario for me with patients is I'll have someone come in and they may have gained, let's say, five to eight pounds over some period of time. And as I'm talking to them to try to figure out what's been going on, they will often say to me, so, you know, about those eight pounds, Dr. Lowe, I'm not worried. Really, really, I'm not worried about that. Because it's muscle. It really is muscle because I've been going to the gym. I had a personal trainer. I even ran a half marathon. So I am a lot stronger. I know it. I can just feel it. I have more muscle, so I'm not worried. Now, when I hear that, I will say, well, we can find out for sure, right? So in the next 15 minutes, we'll do a simple test. We'll find out for sure and we'll know if those eight pounds were just muscle. So let's go ahead and do that test. They never want to do the test. They never want, they'll swear it's muscle, it's eight pounds of muscle, but they'll never want to do the test. In my experience of treating patients over the years, I'm going to say it's likely not muscle. That was probably eight pounds of fat, really. Very little muscle. And in this episode, you'll find out why it's not so easy to build muscle. Also, if you're someone who's been struggling with your weight for a while and it just seems really hard to lose weight no matter what you try, um, this is probably going to be an eye-opening episode for you as well. So muscle is very important for structure, for maintaining posture. It's really important for movement. In fact, you wouldn't be able to move at all if you didn't have, you know, muscles, right? You'd just be a skeleton and you really need the contraction of those muscles to help you get around. 40% of your total body weight is from muscle and by this we mean um, skeletal muscle right well ideally 40 percent it's not what i see it's not generally the case but ideally 40 percent of your total body weight should come from skeletal muscle skeletal muscle would be the muscles that are involved in helping you move and do work so for example if you're going to the gym, right, and you're working out, those would be the skeletal muscles you're working out. They are generally under voluntary control. So if you had a dumbbell and you were just doing your dumbbell curls, your biceps curls, then you, you kind of tell yourself to raise the weight and then to lower it, right? So basically you're telling the muscle to contract and relax and that is under your voluntary control. We have other muscles, the smooth muscles in our bodies. Those are in areas like in your blood vessels so that when they contract, they cause the blood vessels to constrict and narrow. Those you can't control. You can't just say, okay, now blood vessels, I want you to like contract those smooth muscles. So they are generally under involuntary control. The other thing that um, sets them apart, the skeletal muscles, if you look under the microscope, they have these lines in them, right, striped, and we call them striated muscle. The smooth muscle cells don't have that. 
right? So that would be skeletal muscle, which is what we're going to focus on today. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the structure of skeletal muscle. Uh, I just want to say I didn't have anything to do with the nomenclature. It gets a little confusing, and I don't like it, but it is what it is, right? So when we talk about skeletal muscle, if you t take a whole muscle group, like your biceps or your triceps, they're actually made of, that whole muscle is made of muscle bundles that we call uh, fascicles. So within a whole muscle, we'll find these individual muscle bundles or muscle fascicles. And each muscle bundle is further made up of more bundles that we call myofibers. Myo for muscle and fibers. So myofibers. So at this point, we have the whole muscle and we break it down. It's made up of various muscle bundles. And if you look at each bundle, it is made up of various myofibers. And each myofiber is made up of myofibrils, right? These are myofibrillar proteins, also some mitochondria and uh, something called the sarcoplasmic reticulum. You don't need to really worry about that. But essentially, we have the myofibers, and if you look into them, they're made of the myofibrils and those other components I talked about. A little bit confusing, but we got through that, right? 75% of the volume of your muscle is made up of fluids. So that's water. And then the rest of it is made up of protein. Okay. Now, if we look at the total number of proteins within muscle, and I want to stress, I'm not talking about concentration of certain proteins. We're not saying how much of a certain protein within the muscle. If we look at the total number of proteins within muscle, then the largest percentage comes from proteins that are involved with metabolism. Yes, metabolism and not contraction. So oftentimes when people talk about skeletal muscle, they go into, you know, the actin, myosin, troponin, and calcium and so forth, and um, try to explain how muscle contraction works. And that's certainly very important and interesting. But that's not what we're going to focus on today, right? Since the total percentage of proteins that are available that you find in muscle are actually involved in metabolism, that means that it's really important, muscle tissue is really important to overall metabolism. All right, let's dive down into something called the BMR or the basal metabolic rate. This is essentially the minimal amount of energy that is required to keep you alive. So imagine you're lying on a couch, or maybe you really are lying on a couch. Eyes are closed, you're just lying there, and you know, to keep your heart beating and your lungs working, uh, to keep your liver from, uh, to keep your liver going and your kidneys, filtering blood to make urine, all the processes of life require energy. And the minimal amount of energy required over a 24-hour period to keep you alive is called the basal metabolic rate or the BMR. Now say, 
you decide, okay, you're going to get up to go to the bathroom, right? Get up, sit up, walk to the bathroom. That's extra. That's not counted in your BMR, okay? That would be counted in what we call physical activity, which would include things like going to the bathroom, going shopping, cleaning your house, walking to the bus stop, that kind of stuff. Right, that would be general physical activity. And then if you went to the gym and you got on your treadmill or you went to your group exercise class, that would be considered exercise energy expenditure. So your total energy expenditure is your basal metabolic rate plus your physical activity plus your exercise activity over that 24-hour period. Okay, now 60 to 70% of the total energy expenditure is coming from your BMR, your basal metabolic rate. So that's most of it, just to keep you alive. It takes a lot of energy. It's a lot of work, right? So 60 to 70% of the total energy expenditure is from your BMR. So the more metabolically active, the more energy a tissue consumes, right, then the higher that basal metabolic rate. And as I said earlier, muscle is metabolically active tissue. So it's really important. Now, in a lab, they've shown that if you take one kilogram of muscle tissue, that's about 2.2 pounds, and it's not in vivo, but in the lab situation, right, that um, metabolic rate for the muscles, not contracting, it's just kind of lying there, it expends about 13 kilocalories per day. If you look at one kilo of fat in comparison, that would expend 4.5 kilocalories per day. So that's a net of 8.5 kilocalories per day. Doesn't seem like much, right? But let's just take a woman who is you know, she's just hit menopause and she goes in to see her doctor and she's 150 pounds. So, you know, she she's pretty happy. She's kept that weight for a while. Three years later, when she goes back to see that primary care, yeah, I know some of the weights for primary care visits are about three years out, right? So three years later, that's pretty realistic. Three years later, she goes back to see her primary care, gets on the scale, and she's 150 pounds. And the primary care congratulates her. Hey, Mrs. Smith, you did a great job. It's, I know, sometimes it's really hard to maintain your weight and, you know, uh, postmenopausally, but you've done a great job because the last time you were here three years ago, you were 150 pounds. You're 150 pounds today. Congratulations, right? But maybe, it wasn't a good thing because what if Mrs. Smith had actually lost five pounds of muscle and gained five pounds of fat? So if you gain five pounds of fat, lose five pounds of muscle, you step on the scale, yeah, it's going to be the same weight. So she was 150 pounds before. It's still going to say 150 pounds. But her body composition has changed, and metabolically now, she is a very different creature. So if we look at the 5 pounds, that's about 2 kilograms, right? And the basal metabolic rate, based on what I told you about skeletal muscle, 
a little earlier, for those two kilos would be 26 kilocalories per day. All right. And for five pounds of fat, again, about two kilos of fat, that's about nine kilocalories per day. So the net difference is going to be she's burning 17 kilocalories less per day. 17. It's a big deal. It's a tiny number, really. Okay, but if you march that out, and we look at 100 days later, that's 1,700 kilocalories less that she's burning in her basal metabolic rate. 1,700 kilocalories. 100 days is a season. It's under, it's just a little over three months. It's not a lot of time, right? And now you've burned 1,700 calories less over those 100 days. Over 300 days, just under a year, you would have burned 5,100 kilocalories less. All right. Now, if we are to look at, um, you know, the, the general conventional um, way of thinking about calories and, and your weight, you often hear people say, well, one pound of fat is 3,500 calories, right? You'll hear people say, and that means that if you take a pound of fat and you, you burn it completely in a bomb calorimeter, that's the amount of energy that you get, right? Uh, it's not quite like that in your body, but let's just take that for now, take the simplistic model and see what happens with that, right? So if we say simplistically that one pound of fat is right, 3,500 calories, then that 5,100 kilocalories, that's going to be 1.5 pounds that uh, you would have gained over 300 days under a year, 1.5 pounds, not doing nothing different, eating the same way, same level of activity. Okay, but in reality, it's probably more than the 1.5 pounds because, you remember, we gained fat, we lost muscle, we gained fat, and fat is oftentimes inflammatory, right, if we have too much fat, and it can set up a chronic inflammatory environment, which means it will damage whatever muscle is there and impact the muscle quality. So that whatever muscle you have left is perhaps not of the greatest quality. It's not functioning well and it might not be, you know, normal metabolically. In which case, you know, it'd be more than the 1.5 pounds. We would have more metabolic abnormalities and over the course of the 300 days, we'll definitely probably looking at more than that 1.5 pounds of net gain in fat, right? So you can start to see that, yeah, even if the number on the scale is the same, right? If the body composition has changed, then you're metabolically a very different creature. Let's move on to sarcopenia. S-A-R-C-O-P-E-N-I-A. Sarcopenia comes from the Greek sarco for flesh, penia, lack of, so essentially it means lack of flesh, but specifically 
in the medical world, when we say sarcopenia, we're talking about lack of muscle, right? This is a muscle issue. So 20 years prior, you really didn't hear much about sarcopenia. It wasn't something that people were interested in. We didn't really discuss it in the medical world. But in the last 10 years, there's been a growing interest in this condition called sarcopenia, so much so that we now have many coalitions that have formed globally uh, to address this issue. So we have things like the European Working Group on Sarcopenia in Older People. That's quite a mouthful. Um, we have the Asian Working Group for Sarcopenia. We have the International, yeah, International Working Group on Sarcopenia. I just noticed they all stress that they are working groups. Like they want you to know they're working because, you know, we all know that there are many groups that are not working. So these people are really working hard on sarcopenia, right? Why are they so concerned? Why are they working so hard? Because we know that if you have sarcopenia, then you're at risk for things like falls, osteoporosis, fractures from those falls, right? And you are more frail. You also have, we just said, that muscle is metabolically active tissue. So now you will have more metabolic abnormalities and dysfunction as well. The um, European Working Group for Sarcopenia in Older People came out with a study that um, basically showed that sarcopenia is a significant predictor of mortality in community-dwelling older adults. By older adults, they meant age 60 and over. And these are people just in the community, healthy, not, you know, hospital-based, not, you know, from a clinic. Regular community-dwelling adults age 60 and older. If you find that they have sarcopenia, you know they have higher mortality from all causes, right? Four times higher risk from all cause for mortality if you have sarcopenia. Right. And that's why they're interested, these groups are interested in sarcopenia. Now, the first thing they have to do is, well, how do we define it? How do we define the sarcopenia? And then, you know, how do we assess it? So, muscle mass is generally correlated to muscle strength, right? And these working groups have decided that if we're looking at sarcopenia, we really have to um, consider muscle mass, how much muscle you have, but we also want to look at the quality and so we'll have to look at muscle strength and or something called muscle performance. All right. Generally, if you have higher muscle mass, then it's likely that you have more strength. That's the general rule, but that's not always the case. There's this 2021 study from New Zealand by Heil et al. I hope I'm saying the name correctly, H-I-O-L et al. And basically what they found was that uh, muscle mass is a significant predictor of strength in non-obese adults, but not in obese adults, right? So what we see in obesity is Sometimes they may seem to have higher muscle mass and you think that's a good thing. But the problem is because they also have high fat mass, 
they have chronic inflammation and so the muscle quality is poor. They probably have fibrosis and fat in the muscle so it doesn't work as it normally should. And therefore, even if they have a higher mass, they really don't have correspondingly higher strength or better performance of that muscle, right? Most of the obesity uh, that I see would be sarcopenic obesity. So they have obesity because they have increased fat mass and also dysfunctional fat, but they also have sarcopenia because even if the muscle mass is high, it's not good quality. So that's a condition called sarcopenic obesity. So I told you we have to evaluate strength, performance, and then mass. So strength you can do. You have these devices you can get over the counter even. Um, the most common one would be something like the hand grip dynamometer, D-Y-N-A-M-O-M-E-T-E-R, right? And it kind of looks like a handle and you grip it and it measures the amount of strength in that grip. Uh, in academic environments, research environments, sometimes they use leg extension and leg flexion machines to assess for strength. So that's how you could evaluate strength. Uh, for performance, people will often use gait speed. So they'll see how fast someone is able to walk between, you know, a, a, you know, one one point and another point. Another way to assess performance, I think, is the tug, right? The timed up and go. I like using the tug. Generally, people use tug for risk assessment for falls, uh, but I think it's a great way to look at muscle performance also, muscle functionality. In the timed up and go, essentially, you have someone sit in a chair, you know, leaning back, and then you have uh, a line or something you've marked 10 feet away. And you tell the patient, okay, when I say go, you're going to stand up, walk to that line, turn around, come back and sit down. All right. And the minute you say go, you're timing them. Right? You watch them get up, go to the line, 10 feet away, come back, sit down. That's the timed up and go. You should be able to do it in under 12 seconds. If you were taking longer than 12 seconds, then you essentially failed the tug, right? It's a, not a good prognosis. So, you know, sometimes you don't even need to actually time the patient. You can just watch them and they're struggling to get up and they're struggling to walk that 10 feet, turn around and come back and sit down again. You don't even need to time them sometimes, right? Generally, with the timed up and go, you're assessing also balance, mobility, but you definitely are also assessing the muscle strength. So I like using that because, you know, you catch other things with the t timed up and go as well. All right, so that's muscle performance or functionality. And then let's talk about mass. So with mass, you could use CT, you could use MRI. Those are great ways to measure um, mass. But, you know, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, uh, with CT, there's higher radiation exposure, so it's hard to follow people over time. And both methods are also quite expensive, take up time. You have to, you know, go to special centers to get them done. So 
I have a DEXA and it's a great way to assess um, their lean mass and that's what I use. Before I actually dive into that, I just want to maybe clarify certain terminology because oftentimes people will use these terms interchangeably and they're not exactly the same. So we really should just make that clear. You will hear fat-free mass, you will hear lean body mass, and you will hear skeletal muscle mass. Okay, so those are the three things you hear, and they will often seem to be interchangeable, although they really are quite different. The way to think about this is just to think about the compartments involved, how many compartments are actually involved. So let's take fat-free mass, right? Essentially, there's only two compartments. There's fat, right, fat mass, and everything that is not fat mass. So it's pretty simple, fat and not fat, right? And the not fat compartment would be made up of, let's see, your bones, organs, tissue, muscle, and also water, right? So that's in that fat-free mass. If you look at lean body mass, Right now you're looking at three compartments. So you have fat mass, you have bone mineral content, and then you have everything else, which is the organs, the tissue, the muscle, and water. Okay, so we just took out the bone mineral content, and that would be lean body mass. Skeletal muscle mass is very specific as the name implies, it's just skeletal muscle that you need CT MRI for. And basically you can assess the dry weight of the muscle within a certain segment, within a, a cut, right, um, of the, the, the imaging, right? So again, not so easy to do, so we don't really use it um, for clinical practices. Fat-free mass, lean body mass, most commonly used. And because I have DEXA, which can separate out the bone mineral content, we're looking at the lean body mass. The most variable components of lean body mass would be muscle and water, right? Because lean body mass, again, would be the organs, connective tissue, and then you have muscle, the skeletal muscle, and then you have water. And obviously, um, the component that fluctuates the most would be water, okay? So we have very specific guidelines when someone is coming in to do a DEXA, but I have seen many centers where they just tell people to come in, don't worry about it, yeah, just come in, we'll do your DEXA, right? And no, it's gonna make a big difference uh, if you don't prepare well beforehand. So what we tell our patients is, make sure you have not eaten or drunk four hours prior to your test. I don't want you to eat lunch, I don't want you to eat anything, I don't want you to drink anything four hours before your test. Because that water component, what you have the water component in the food, for example, I had a protein shake, yeah, that's going to impact your results. The other thing we'll want to do is, before we do the test, we have them go to the bathroom, empty the bladder. I don't want to be like assessing the pee contents as well, right? So we empty the bladder. Now, I, whenever I do a test, I'm always thinking about how the circadian rhythm might impact the results. So, you know, I try to get them to come at the same time. It's very, 
you know, that's not easy to do. That, that's hard. But if you can have the patient come back at about the same time, you know, if they did it at 3 o'clock the last time in the afternoon, then come back at 3 o'clock, or at least come back in the afternoon and not early morning, right? So you want to just be wary and not vary the time too much. In a premenopausal woman, I will also try to make sure that she's coming back in the same phase of that menstrual cycle because your fluid status um, can change depending on where you are in the cycle. So I want to try, again, not always possible, but you want to try your best to get that premenopausal woman to come back in that same phase of the menstrual cycle. So, you know, if you're getting a DEXA somewhere and they just tell you, just come on in and do it, uh, yeah, no, just go by my guidelines and you'll get more accurate results, okay? Because we want to remove as many confounding factors as possible. If you look at the water fluctuations, that could fluctuate within, you know, a half hour, right? If you now down a liter of water or fluids, then that's going to impact the results. Uh, so the change there is very fast. When we're looking at muscle, really, you know, it's not going to change that quickly. And I tend to wait months, two to three months, before I get the next DEXA. Because, you know, you go to the gym, and I, I'm not really going to see anything in three weeks, realistically. So I tend to wait about three, two to three months out before I get the next DEXA. Now, in my first episode, I talked about metabolism. What I didn't mention is that you could split metabolism into two general categories of processes, all right? One would be called anabolic processes or anabolism, and the other one would be catabolic processes or catabolism. With anabolic processes, what we're talking about is building up tissue to store energy in them. That's really anabolism. And when we talk about catabolic processes, we're talking about breaking down tissue to release energy, all right, to release uh, nutrients. So we have anabolic processes, we have catabolic processes. Anabolism is to build tissue, so we store the energy in that tissue. And Catabolism would be to break down tissue and release energy from that tissue. What we're really um, concerned about would be the net of those two because you will have both processes occurring in your body at any given time. It's not like you only do anabolism or you only do catabolism. At any point in time, you have both processes going on and we're looking at the net effect. We're also looking at you know, specific tissue. So, for example, you could have a net anabolic effect in fat tissue. So you're building up more fat tissue and a catabolic net effect in muscle tissue and you're actually breaking down muscle tissue. So, again, because we are talking about muscle, let's just have that context. We're talking about muscle here when we're talking about anabolic or catabolic processes, okay? Um... Now, because I told you how important it is um, to have muscle 
it is metabolically very important, then obviously we want more anabolism with regard to muscle, which means we want to build more muscle tissue to preserve what we have or hopefully even gain a little more, a little more muscle tissue, right? So we hope to be anabolic in terms of muscle. Over the course of our lifetime though, from the time of your 40s onwards, unfortunately, the natural process is to start losing muscle. You lose about 3 to 8% of your muscle mass uh, over a, the course of a decade from the time of your 40s onwards. All right, That's what the textbooks say. Yeah. Yeah, no, reality, it's probably worse than that. Okay? So, even if you're doing the right things, even if you are having good nutrition and trying to exercise and do all the right things, um, you're still going to have this tendency to lose muscle. And so, you know, you still have this tendency to lose that 3 to 8% over the course of the decade. This is what we call anabolic resistance because you are resistant to anabolism in muscle. You're resistant to building up muscle as you age, okay? Anabolic resistance. Now, I told you from the time you are in your 40s and onwards is when you start to see this anabolic resistance. But in reality, what I'm seeing is people in their 30s onwards start to become resistant, all right? And this is especially true because um, I see people who work a lot in sedentary uh, jobs. They're not moving very much. So the more sedentary you are, the less active you are, the more you're going to have this anabolic resistance. So I tend to see it at an earlier age. On top of that, if you have chronic diseases, that's going to also accelerate this anabolic resistance. And we'll dive into that a little bit later, all right? So if you are sedentary and not very active, you have chronic diseases, that's not good. You're going to have uh, a little bit more of this muscle loss and it will start earlier. In addition, in real life, we have catabolic crises, right? And what this means is we have periods in our lives where we actually have more catabolism going on. For example, if you get an infection or you have surgery. So take the case of infection if you caught pneumonia, right? So you're not feeling well, you're in bed, um, you need energy to fight uh, the, the pneumonia, and maybe your appetite is down as well. So that would be considered a, a catabolic crisis. If you had surgery, for example, even pre-surgery, you might already not be as active because you're not feeling well or you're not able to move as well because of pain. So pre-surgery, you're already starting to be more and more uh, inactive or sedentary. And then you have surgery, right? And that itself is a major catabolic crisis because, you know, um, surgery usually involves cutting you open, right? And then you have those wounds and they need to heal. And um, you also immobilize, you have bed rest. Maybe you're not able to be full weight bearing. 
and uh, you know your doctor may say no normal activities for you know several weeks so when we think about surgery you always realize that those are catabolic crises so when we factor in these catabolic crises you know uh, in uh, the normal course of life then instead of that three to eight percent muscle loss over a decade probably we're looking at 5 to 12 percent and in some cases maybe even 15 percent muscle loss over that decade each decade okay and probably gets worse as you get older right so rather than 3 to 8 percent I think in reality it's probably 5 to 12 maybe even 15 percent especially in people with chronic diseases as well now I talked about infection and I talked about surgery, hip replacement, maybe you have hernia surgery, that kind of thing. But there's one other case of catabolic crises that I want to bring our attention to. And I call it a covert catabolic crisis because we don't recognize it. It's right in front of our eyes and we don't really think about it, right? And this would be Weight loss, weight loss, yes, can be, usually is, a catabolic crisis. All right, now, obviously, we have high prevalence of obesity in our population today. By BMI, I told you, 42 to 45%, somewhere in there. But if we go by percent body fat, then we're closer to 90% obesity in the population, right, in the U.S., so at any point in time, I can tell you that there are many, many millions of people who are trying to lose weight. And they put themselves on these diets, they try different things. But what we're not considering is that when you do that, you are essentially putting your body through a catabolic crisis. So let me give you an example. If you take someone who has lost 60 pounds, all right, let's say this person, you know, found a diet that worked for him and he focused and, you know, was very determined and lost 60 pounds. Well, that's the good news, I think. The bad news is that with weight loss, up to 35% of that weight loss is from fat-free mass. 35%. Okay. Uh, so that's about, in the 60-pound weight loss, that's like 20-something pounds, right? a little bit over 20 pounds. Now, some of that is water, because that is part of fat-free mass, but also a good amount is from muscle. Okay? So we are losing muscle when we lose weight. So because we've lost muscle, then your basal metabolic rate drops, and you are, you have less metabolically active tissue in your body, right? Now it's harder to maintain that lower weight. And so inevitably people will regain the weight. But here's the really bad news. You're not going to be regaining muscle because of anabolic resistance. Most likely the majority of the weight regain is going to be from fat. So now your body composition shifts even further, right? You lost muscle. Now you regain even more fat, which is also damaging to muscle. And we start this vicious cycle. 
I um, see this often in a lot of the women who come to see me, and they, many of them have just tried every single diet out there. And they will come and tell me, Dr. Lo, I hardly eat. And that's very common. They actually uh, go into this restrictive pattern. They don't eat. And yet, I keep gaining weight or I can't lose any weight, you know. There's just something wrong. And there's just, my doctor keeps telling me I should just eat less, I should eat healthier. But I'm not eating, I promise, right? And I believe them, okay? We stereotype a lot. We make all kinds of assumptions around weight and um, obesity. And uh, a lot of these patients will come and they'll say, I hardly eat and I'm unable to, you know, lose weight or to maintain my weight. It just keeps going up. And a lot of the times, every time they try a new diet, they're losing more lean mass, they're losing more muscle, and they're negatively impacting their body composition. I want to specifically reference this article um, that came out in June of 21. It's a study from the Netherlands. So I don't want to mention the author's names because I will mangle them, but I will put the reference up on the website. Anyway, it looks at magnitude and progress of lean body mass, fat-free mass, and uh, skeletal muscle mass loss following bariatric surgery. So this is looking at bariatric surgery and how much of the weight you lose is from fat-free mass, lean body mass, or uh, skeletal muscle mass, right? So the average weight loss from bariatric surgery is 32% of pre-operative weight within the year of the surgery, okay? 32%. And because I use DEXA and I mostly look at lean body mass, I just focus on the lean body mass part of this paper, although they actually also address fat-free mass and uh, skeletal muscle mass, all right? So with this was a meta-analysis, and so with the lean body mass, they looked at 37 studies. And what they found was that 12 months after bariatric surgery, you know, the lean body mass loss was about 8.13 kilograms. That would be 17.8 pounds. So let's just say 18 pounds in the course of a year, right, after bariatric surgery. So that works out to be about 23% of the total weight loss, okay? 18 pounds of lean body mass loss. 55% of that loss occurs three months from the surgery, in the first three months. So basically, they lose something like 9.79 pounds or 10 pounds, let's just say 10 pounds, right, within the first three months of surgery out of those total 18 pounds of lean mass that they've lost. Now, in comparison, if you look at a, um, a diet, a LCD, a calorie restriction diet of 800 to 1,000 calories, in three months, the fat-free mass uh, lost is 1.5 kilograms or 3.3 pounds. Okay? Now, I just want to make it clear, I am not here um, to speak against bariatric surgery because I have lots of patients that I treat who have had bariatric surgery. Um, and I think that bariatric surgery 
medications, use of meal replacements, these are all good tools in helping people manage their metabolic health. All right, they are good tools, but they all usually have to be paired with behavior modification. Right, the best surgeons will tell you that. Anyone prescribing you a medication will tell you that. Right, the best results are always with behavior modification because if you don't address behavior, you're really going to see weight regain and you know, essentially you're going to see fat regain because you lose lean masses, you have anabolic resistance, and then most of the thing that you regain is going to be mostly fat. So these are great tools, but you know, you have to think very carefully when you have a patient what is happening. So I told you I have lots of patients who've had bariatric surgery and um, I like working with the bariatric surgeons. Now when they send me the patient though, it means that I really have to think about their overall metabolic health and not just focus on how much weight they've lost. Okay, sometimes we, we're happy that we get them off the diabetes medication and so forth, but that's not looking at the big picture and the long term. So you really have to be very careful what uh, is actually being lost. You know, we could lose fat, that's good, but uh, especially the sick fat, right? But if you're losing muscle, yeah, you're going to have to prioritize making sure they preserve as much of that muscle as possible, right? That's what's not being discussed, I think, in the general medical world, in the general obesity treatment world. Okay, now we're going to talk about accelerated muscle loss, and uh, this often happens with chronic diseases. So for example, diabetes and renal disease. Those are the two I'm gonna you know, address today, right? But there certainly are others. So with diabetes, with renal disease, those chronic conditions actually predispose people to sarcopenia. Diabetes, you have high blood sugar, and that is very damaging to muscle tissue. So we damage the muscle, we lose muscle, and therefore we have accelerated muscle loss. It is very well known that if you are diabetic, then you have accelerated muscle loss. Okay, now this ends up being a really bad situation. Why? Because muscle is very important in terms of handling your blood sugar. You can consider it a sink for glucose, all right? So when you have glucose in your bloodstream, it has to go somewhere, and the best case scenario would be for it to go to some very metabolically active tissue so that we can consume it and use it up, right? That would be the best case scenario, and muscle is that metabolically active tissue, and plus, you know, it, it, if, if we're talking about normal circumstances, it's 40% of your total body weight, so that's a large um, mass to be absorbing this blood sugar. So it acts as a good sink for blood sugar. So if we take, um, uh, let's just imagine, let's just imagine that you drank uh, 100 grams of a glucose solution, 100 grams of glucose, right? And imagine your total muscle, you know, volume is really the size of a dumpster. Yeah, I'm just using this so you get a visual. 
So a dumpster size um, container for that 100 grams of glucose. That's a great thing, right? And you don't have to worry because you've got lots of room for that glucose to go. No problem. But let's just say instead of the dumpster, you now have, you have a pail, okay? A tiny little pail. And now you have that 100 grams of glucose and yeah, it doesn't have the same amount of space to go into. Instead of a dumpster, it's got this little pail. And inevitably, some of it will spill out. Spill out where? It will spill out into the circulation, into your bloodstream, and also into organs, where it is very inflammatory. Okay, so now you have this extra blood sugar now that is circulating in your bloodstream because your muscle mass has shrunk, your sink is smaller, and this excess blood sugar is damaging to muscle, so we shrink the muscle component even more, right? We keep shrinking that muscle component with this accelerated muscle loss, such that the blood sugar now is going to get higher and higher, even if you are eating the same thing. You're keeping the same dietary regimen. All right. I'm not changing anything, Dr. Law. I'm eating the same. Why is my blood sugar going up? Well, if you are losing muscle, which is your greatest glucose sink, you have less place to put the glucose, so it's going to spill out into the bloodstream, and your blood sugar readings are going to be higher. All right. You can see that's a lose-lose situation. No good. Now let's look at renal disease. Right. Sarcopenia, very common in uh, renal disease. And in fact, um, most, most patients that I see uh, that have kidney disease really do have sarcopenia. I, I don't think I've seen any renal patients without sarcopenia. So in the old days, they would say, if you have renal disease, we have to restrict protein. You can't eat that much protein. It's going to damage your kidneys, blah de blah de blah But what we know now is, actually, if you treat the sarcopenia, you are going to improve kidney function. I'll say that again. If you treat the sarcopenia, you will improve kidney function most of the time. I've certainly seen that in my patient population. Right. So there is actually a loosening now of the protein restrictions around um, renal patients. Now they're actually encouraging higher amounts of protein, the most recent recommendations. Because really, if you prioritize addressing the sarcopenia, you will um, help the renal disease get better. Sarcopenia also predicts mortality in uh, renal transplant patients. So if someone's going to get a renal transplant, kidney transplant, and they have sarcopenia, yeah, they're not going to do well. Mortality rate is high in those patients. We really should be assessing them for sarcopenia, and most of them have sarcopenia, um, and the worse it is, then the worse they do, the more likely they are to die with that kidney transplant, right? I remember um, we had a case, and this was a young woman. She was in her early 30s, she had congenital kidney disease. So very young, um, she had her first kidney transplant. Those don't last forever. So now she found herself in her 30s needing the second kidney transplant. And um, she came to me because 
She wanted to really make sure that she was in the best condition possible before the transplant operation, which meant that we had to buffer up. We had to get her muscle mass up because with good muscle mass, she was going to tolerate that surgery better, which was what we did. We spent a few months really working with her, getting her muscle mass optimized, right? And then she went to surgery. Now, normally, what she told me, and I did see her after surgery, um, she said, well, the, the transplant doctor told me that I would be in the hospital for, for about four days after the kidney transplant, right? Actually, they sent her home on the second day. They sent her home on the second day because she did so well. She had no complications, tolerated the procedure really well. A, she was young. I'll give you that. B, though, we really worked on that muscle mass, right? So really, if there are kidney patients out there, you want to prioritize your muscle mass. And now, the last thing briefly that I want to talk about is this condition called cachexia, spelled C-A-C-H-E. XIA, cachexia. This is advanced and accelerated muscle loss in a hyperinflammatory environment. Okay, so we see this most commonly, I think, we think about cancer patients. Now, people don't realize this, but 20% of all cancer patients die from the cachexia, from this advanced and accelerated muscle loss alone. They are not dying from the cancer. They are not dying from the chemo. They're not dying from the treatment. They are dying from the muscle loss, this accelerated um, advanced muscle loss under hyperinflammatory conditions that the cancer sets up, right? So those patients you want to prioritize. I actually believe that anyone with cancer should get an assessment to make sure what their uh, baseline lean mass is, and you do that by DEXA. And then you need to follow them because you catch them in the pre stage when you start to see some muscle loss. That's the only time you might have a chance of treating it. So you want to know early if someone is going down the road towards cachexia, right? I don't want to go into detail with that. If that is something you want me to talk about, I can certainly do a full episode on that. Let me know in the comments, okay? All right, so we have cancer cachexia, but we also have cardiac cachexia. So patients with heart failure, for example, they're very debilitated. They can't get out of bed, so they can't move very much, right? And so they will have advanced loss of muscle as well, and that's an inflammatory milieu as well in their bodies. And they will have cardiac cachexia. Uh, respiratory cachexia, that we see in patients with COPD, the patients with emphysema. And again, they're very deconditioned and they can't do a lot of physical activity. Their nutrition is poor and they have hyperinflammatory situation in their body. So they get into these cachectic stage, uh, states where they lose so much muscle that they don't even have enough muscle to help them breathe. Right? So that breathing itself becomes very difficult. So that would be respiratory cachexia. Again, all types of cachexia, they're not easy to treat because they're associated with a lot of inflammation as well. And, you know, your best chance of treating it is catching it early. Now, I talked a lot about, you know, what happens when you lose muscle. So obviously, the big question is going to be, how do I not lose muscle, Dr. Lowe? How do I preserve or even hopefully gain some muscle. And 
I just tell this to patients, right? First of all, you got to get rid of the inflammation. Yet you just do. Once we've addressed that, then you have to do what I call my trifecta here, right? And there is no negotiating this. You got to hit all three. You can't just do one of the three. You can't just do two of them. You got to do all three and you have to be consistent because you already have anabolic resistance. And if you have chronic disease, you have accelerated muscle loss on top of that. Accelerated anabolic resistance, right? So, and maybe even precachexia. So you cannot mess around here. The, the three categories are um, nutrition. I told you that muscle is made out of protein. So you got to get in enough protein. You can't really store protein. There's no organ where you can store extra protein. So what you eat, if you don't eat it, you get rid of it. All right. Um, you pee it out. So you are going to make sure that you have enough protein every day. And it's not just a total amount of protein. It's how you dose it per meal. It's the time interval. All these things count. Again, that's a lot to go into. If you want me to do an episode on that, let me know. We'll do one on that. Okay. Just on the nutrition aspects for protein. So you have to prioritize protein intake. And that's a big thing with my patients because they're already used to restricting. And I'm like, you got to eat more and you got to get more protein. I want to eat more. Oh my God. I will just gain weight or I feel so f eat or you will not get to a good place. Right. Number two, exercise. Now, when I talk to my patients about exercise, they'll always tell me, oh, well, you know, I'm on the treadmill, I'm on the elliptical, I'm on the stationary bike, all good. That's great for cardiovascular endurance, but it is not addressing your lean mass. In order to really preserve and or build muscle, what you need to do is resistance training. And by that, I mean weights, you know, dumbbells, barbells, you could use bands, you could do body weight, all right? But you have to use a load and have your muscle work against that load. And you have to have progressive overload. So after some time, when it gets easy, you have to keep challenging the muscle. That's the part where I think patients um, really miss out on because they're happy that they're going to the gym and maybe they're working with some weights but they don't actually push themselves further. And when it gets easy, they just continue the same regimen. So, you know, I always tell my patients, and you know who you are. I know you know who you are. It's time to put away the pink dumbbells. Yep, we put down the pink dumbbells and pick up the chartreuse dumbbells, right? We move up on the weights. So you don't have to go to 100 pounds or 150 pounds. The whole point is if you started with 2.5 pounds, okay, eventually you graduate to 5 pounds, then maybe 7 pounds. You keep inching your way up and it doesn't have to, it shouldn't happen in one day or one week, right? This is progressively over time. But it should not get so easy where it's a piece of cake and you're not progressing. So you have to keep that in mind, progressive overload, right? Rest is number three. I will do a whole episode on sleep at some point, right? But getting good sleep in terms of quality and duration is extremely important. You're not going to have good uh, muscle quality, good muscle mass if you're not going to prioritize sleep. If you talk to professional athletes, you know, people always want to know about their training regimen, their nutrition maybe, 
but you should ask them about their sleep regimen because they all have one and they prioritize sleep if they are hoping to improve or optimize their performance okay so you're not going to get optimal muscle mass and quality of muscle if you're not sleeping and the other component of rest is also intervals between your resistance training right in general very quickly um, you probably want to leave about a day between resistance training with a specific muscle group so if you're training one muscle group then you don't want to train it again the next day you want to leave at least one day between that train the first training session and the next one for the most part that will work some people they're very advanced in um, weight training and resistance training if you know they've been doing it for a long time the, those advanced people will maybe need more than that one day but by and large most of us that one day is fine and again, if you want me to go into the specifics of exercise resistance training, yeah, let me know in the comments. I'm happy to do an episode on that, right? Whatever people would find helpful. Okay, we did a lot today. Let's go into our summary. Um, we talked about muscle. Ideally, that should be 40% of your body weight. It is important metabolic tissue. And the less muscle you have, the less metabolically active tissue you have, which means your basal metabolic rate drops, not good. And this will lead to metabolic dysfunction and disease states. We talked about sarcopenia, and this is decrease in muscle mass and quality as defined by muscle strength and or performance slash functionality. Right? So sarcopenia is important because it's associated with increased morbidity and mortality. And also, we get anabolic resistance as we age. This is generally accelerated by catabolic crises, of which weight loss is an extremely common one that we tend to overlook. We want to prioritize fat loss, especially dysfunctional fat, and not just weight loss. We really have to get a lot more nuanced when we talk about weight loss, right? Three, chronic diseases like diabetes, renal disease, um, really accelerate muscle loss and lead to further metabolic dysfunction. So you're not going to be metabolically healthy if you don't prioritize muscle. Four, we get advanced and accelerated muscle loss associated with a hyperinflammatory state. This is called cachexia. We see that in cancer. We see that um, in cardiac illness and pulmonary diseases and it has to be caught early if we're going to have a chance to treat it. Essentially, um, if you want to preserve or uh, reverse sarcopenia, preserve muscle, reverse sarcopenia, then you're going to have to prioritize resistance training, right? Cut all the, you don't have to cut all the cardio out, but you can't only do cardio you really have to get in two to three days of good resistance training. Then you have to prioritize nutrition, make sure you get your protein and dose it right, and you have to prioritize rest, sleep, and so forth. Anything else you want to know, please write that in the comments, um, contact us, let us know what would be helpful. Okay, like I said, that was a lot today, uh, but I hope it was helpful for you we're at the end of our episode 
And so signing out from VLMD Rounds, this is Dr. Vivian Lowe and I sing the body electric.